Hello and welcome back to the Evening Roundup Show here on Connect 91.5 FM. I am your host, Anmol Ajla. We are going to be joined shortly by our special guest tonight. Her name is Jaspreet Kaur. We're going to get into talking a little bit more about the power of words. I feel like that's going to be a great way to put it. Now, Jaspreet is better known for her um, work as a spoken word artist from East London. Now, by day, Jaspreet is a secondary school history and sociology teacher with an academic background in both history and gender studies. Now, her work aims to tackle issues related to gender discrimination, mental health stigma, the post-colonial immigrant experience, taboo issues within the South Asian community, and much more. Now, she is currently taking a break from teaching to focus more on her journey as a writer, poet, and performer. Now, over the last two years, by the age of 27, Jasprey has performed all around the uh, all around the UK. Now, this includes the 2018th Commonwealth Service at Westminster Abbey, Theatre Royal London, Oxford and Cambridge University, London City Hall, the House of Lords, Tregfalager Square, TEDx UCL W Women, and Women Around the Globe. Um, no, sorry, Women Around the World Global. Now, her TEDx London talk was called House Poetry Saved My Life. And to, she spoke that to an audience of 1,200 people and explored how the power of her words gave her the confidence to overcome her own mental health struggles, as well as her performing poetry. It per, they provide workshops and motivational talks up for all ages. Now, today we are going to speak to her regarding her incredible journey, you know, as a South Asian woman in this field and more getting into the fact that words are powerful and how she kind of conquers and channels those words to better represent what she wants to represent, who she wants to be, and how it helps her when it comes down to mental health issues, how it helps her with the post-colonial immigrant experience, or these taboo issues that we see all the time in the South Asian community. So now, without any further ado, let's introduce Jaspreet and give her a warm welcome as we bring her on as our guest tonight. Okay, hi Jasmeet, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm good, thank you. And... Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? I did a little brief introduction, but it always comes best from the expert. Oh, thank you so much. Um, so my name is Jaspreet Kaur. I'm also known as Behind the Nedra for my spoken word poetry. Um, I'm a history and sociology teacher as well. So I've been teaching in secondary schools across London for the last five years. Mm-hmm. Um, but as well as being a, a teacher and an educator, I'm also a spoken word poet. So I've been writing poetry since about the age of 13. Um, and at that point, it was something I'd kept to myself and it was a form of therapy and an outlet for me growing up. Um, but a couple of years ago, about four or five years ago, I finally decided to pluck up the courage to perform live mm-hmm. at an open mic night here in London. And overnight, I guess, um, from that one performance going going viral across the UK, uh, the US, Canada, India, Australia, overnight, this, this poetry career also launched. And I was balancing both, um, being a teacher and a poet, for a few years, um, but now I've decided to take a short break from teaching, mm-hmm. and as I'm currently working on my first book. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about me. 
Awesome. And, you know, I was reading your bio. You've done absolutely amazing. I was reading, tell the audience a little bit about where you've performed all over the UK. Now, how is that? How is getting up on the stage and basically doing your spoken word? Oh, that's, that's such a good question. I, I get asked this question a lot about how to build up the confidence to, to stand on stage in front of hundreds of people and, and really being quite vulnerable with these audiences and, and really vulnerable with the people that I perform in front of, usually complete strangers. And my poetry kind of crosses themes to do with gender issues, to mm-hmm. do with mental health, to do with race and identity. So they're really vulnerable topics and really vulnerable subjects. But I feel once I step on that stage, there's this this indescribable confidence that happens when I, when I know I'm going to be talking about something that I care about. And yeah. I guess it's that, that sense of passion and purpose that makes me feel so confident on stage to want to share that story or to share that message. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's quite interesting because as, as a person and my personality, I would describe myself as, as quite an introvert. So people find it quite interesting that I'm able to stand on stage and perform in front of hundreds of people. But in terms of my personality, I, I would describe myself as, as an introvert, which just goes to show that you don't need to be the loudest person in, in the room or the most extroverted person to be able to perform on stage um, if you've got something you care about, you can do it. Mm-hmm, definitely, 100%. Now, I know that you, when it comes down to your spoken word, you find inspiration to talk about, you know, gender discrimination, mental health stigma, the immigrant experience, and just like, you know, certain things that happen in the South Asian community. What made mm-hmm. you want to go in that kind of direction? I guess what really triggered that that passion was, for years as a teenager, kind of growing up as a brown woman here in the UK, being having been born here in London and, and growing up here in the UK, I always felt like there there was a story about us that was never being told. Mm-hmm. And our, our experiences and our voices and our concerns and our struggles just were never in, in wider dialogues in society. I never saw it on TV screens. I never saw it in books. And mm-hmm. I definitely never saw it in the classroom either. So I wanted to use poetry as a way to explore our existence and what it means to be a brown woman. What does it mean to be a Punjabi Sikh woman? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to have this intersectional identity? Um, and sometimes talking about really difficult subjects too, the taboo subjects that we really love to brush under the carpet in our community, like violence against women, like mental health stigma. And I felt like I'd had enough feeling muted and I I had enough of feeling silenced. And Mm -hmm. I felt that poetry was a really accessible way to tackle some of these really hard subjects. Mm -hmm. And I I knew that maybe people wouldn't have the access to read long papers or long journals, but a poem is something that could be a minute to read or two minutes to listen to. And I felt that was a really accessible way to tackle some of these really, really hard subjects. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was my voice. And I guess that's what made me feel unmuted. And now, how was your response from the, I guess, overall response and your response from the South Asian community? 
I guess um, the initial response was really, really positive. When I first started performing and did that first show, like I mentioned earlier, it went, it went viral online. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the support I've been getting from the South Asian community here in the UK, but also globally, has been incredible. And that's where I kind of had this love-hate relationship with social media because it has allowed me to reach this global audience that has been supporting a lot of the work that I've done over the last five years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, a really, really positive um, and supportive community and a sense of sisterhood that I really feel I've, I've felt over the last couple of years um, across the South Asian community. So that's women from the Punjabi background, but also Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Sri Lankan. I'd say anyone who identifies as a brown woman has been able to connect with the work. So that, that's been incredible to be able to connect with that kind of sisterhood. Um, but what, what also comes with that love, also there are people out there that still want to silence women and, and still want to silence specifically women of colour mm-hmm. um, in the public space, but also in the digital space online as well. So I have received the, the kind of horrible threats online and abuse online and and trying to people trying to silence me in those ways because I am talking about subjects that people would, would wish to, to keep quiet and keep silent and uh, being a woman of colour that's quite outspoken and so passionate, passionate about these subjects, there will be people that want to silence that. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess for a long time that, that was quite painful for me, for someone who had never experienced these things online before. It was really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had to put things in place to make sure that I look after my well-being and my mental well-being, um, especially trying to stay safe online. Mm-hmm. But I have to remind myself that for every troll and every horrible message, there will be hundreds that outweigh that. Mm-hmm. And that's what that keeps me going um, and not wanting to be silenced ever again. Now, I know that getting on stage initially was probably one of the scariest things ever or probably really nerve wracking. <laughs> How did you conquer that? And what kind of advice would you give to someone who is in that same position that you were in once? Oh, really good question. Um I guess the first and foremost thing to think about is 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 to consider why you want to do this. What mm-hmm. is your why? Um, and that's like Simon Sinek's book. Um, start with the why is that that's that kind of famous saying nowadays. I always start with why, and your sense of purpose in wanting to do it. And I think focusing on that sense of passion and purpose of, of why you want to do it is definitely the place to start and to, yeah. and to hold on to that feeling. And then from that point, it's more about, okay, now that I've figured out my why, then to start considering the what and the how. Mm -hmm. So what do you actually want to deliver? Is it a speech, a keynote talk, a poem, music, dance? What is your form of expression? And then it's the how. Mm -hmm. And that's something that definitely develops over time about this confidence of being in front of audiences and being confident on stage. Mm -hmm. Um, There's definitely different tips and tricks like, I'm a big fan of positive visualization about before I go on stage or before I do a talk or a performance, um, I literally sit there and visualize the room, visualize the audience and visualize it going really well. Um, I'm a big believer in positive visualization because it kind of makes you feel like it is possible by imagining it in your head first. So that kind of helps me build that confidence. Um, 
And I always try to look back at my performances. I hate it. I hate hearing my voice, but I hate looking back at it and it makes me cringe. But I know to develop my craft and to develop my work, I kind of evaluate old performances and, and old talks and that sort of stuff so that I can grow. So try to record yourself, see how that goes. It may feel really cringy and it feels really horrible, but it will help in your progress in terms of public speaking and, and having that confidence. Now, Jasper, how difficult was it to find the words to channel, you know, I guess mental health? Because I know that's one of your inspirations to speak about and bring light to. So how was that? Yeah, so I, that's how my, my poetry journey originally began. And I never even considered it as, as poetry when I first started. I thought it was just me kind of scribbling thoughts and feelings onto a page. But mm-hmm. it was about the age of 13, I'd say 13 or 14. And at that time, I was going through what I, what I now understand was anxiety attacks and panic attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, which was kind of the start of an anxiety disorder that I, I later understood in my 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a teenager growing up in quite quite a traditional Punjabi family, not being able to talk about mental health, not being able to talk about our emotions in that way, um, and always hearing really negative slurs um, to do with mental health. So mm-hmm. whenever somebody spoke about depression or, or anxiety or mental health disorders, it was always in a really negative light. Mm-hmm. really negative words used against them and, and really brushed under the carpet. So that's all I had been seeing growing up. Mm-hmm. So I thought for all these feelings I was feeling inside, I'll just write them down. And that's what I started doing. It was a, it was a journal that I had and I started writing down all these feelings um, and all this kind of chaotic feelings I was feeling in my mind. Mm-hmm. I would just write them down. Um, and it really was my form of therapy. It was my form of release. Um, and at a point where I couldn't access kind of more formal mental health services, that was my only outlet. The page was my only outlet. Um, mm-hmm. And over the years, I then kind of in my early 20s and started other forms of mental health support. But alongside counselling and all the other things I've done over the years, I've always stuck with writing as well um, because it is such a powerful form of release for me. Now, when it comes down to, I know, speaking about mental health, what was the initial reaction to putting it into your poetry from, I guess, your audience? I think um, the mental health poetry has connected with people in a way that I never imagined it could. Mm-hmm. Um, and through the power of words, that that sense of, I'm not alone in this. Yeah. Is really, is really, really powerful. And I, I guess that's what people were feeling when they read the poems online or, or heard the performances or, or watched the videos. It just made everyone who felt those similar feelings realise, you know what, I'm not alone in this. Mm-hmm. And that was what really empowered me as well And when I first started performing those particular pieces, those really vulnerable pieces. Mm-hmm. I realised, yeah, I'm not alone in this. And and for years, I did feel really alone in it. And Mm. I I didn't know if anybody else would understand what these anxiety attacks were or these really low moods were. Um, And I realized, no, I wasn't the only one. But now it's about kind of the next step. And as a community, what can we be doing better to support our mental well-being? And how can I make sure that in our community, we we get to a point that we see our mental well-being just Mm -hmm. as equally as important as our physical well-being um and I laugh that that 
for people by, by giving the example, we, we spend hundreds and hundreds of pounds or, 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 or spend a lot of money on our physical health, on going to gyms, paying for gym memberships mm-hmm. and, and, and all that sort of side of things to our physical well-being and thinking about the food and our, our nourishment in that sense. Mm-hmm. But we should be considering our mental well-being in the same way. In the same way that you would look after your body, you should be looking after your mind. And and a part of that is doing exercises for the mind. A part of that is nourishing the mind mm-hmm. in the same way you would want to nourish your body. So I think that's kind of the next step in the conversation now about how do we make these changes in our communities about the way that we look at mental health. Mm-hmm. And do you have any plans going forward when it comes down to your poetry and addressing mental health? Yeah, absolutely. I guess one side of it is still the kind of social awareness and that kind of online presence of talking about mental health awareness and tackling that stigma. Um, But one of the main things I'm working on at the moment is my kind of Poetry for Calm workshop Mm -hmm. that I launched for the first time last year, so back Mm -hmm. in 2020. And during the height of the pandemic, I realized there was really a need for people to have an outlet for the the difficult emotions we've been facing over this last year. Mm-hmm. And so I launched a series of online poetry workshops yeah. and they were all live tutorials over the summer and they, they were a huge success. I never imagined that many people to sign up or the classes to be as big as they were. And mm-hmm. um, so that's definitely something I'm going to be developing a bit more now in 2021 and, and these online poetry workshops. Mm-hmm. And hopefully when the when the world returns to some sort of normality, also developing those more in the public space as well. Mm-hmm. And now I know you do speak about other kind of things during your poetry as well. And one is the post-colonial immigrant experience. Now, how do you how do you express yourself when it comes down to that? What are some of the keys that you express when you're speaking about that? I guess one of the, the biggest inspirations for, for that side of my poetry about this post-colonial immigrant experience definitely derives from my granddad's story. Mm-hmm. Um, and when my Babaji first moved from Punjab to the UK in the early 60s, mm-hmm. uh, one of the first kind of migrants at that time in the late 50s, early 60s, to come over to London um, and really being able to share his story um, a lot through my work and a lot through my poetry, mm-hmm. a story that so often got ignored or, or went untold for so long. So really telling his his story um, and alongside that also my mum's journey as, as a woman of colour and as a Punjabi woman coming to the UK mm-hmm. at the age of 18 quite a young woman not knowing much English and going into a whole new environment and a whole new world here in London mm-hmm. about what that felt like for her and and interestingly enough as, as I've got older I realised that my mother and I had more similarities than I thought we did differences. And that's been a really interesting journey growing up and, and using my poetry to explore that, that, that certain things about our culture and our traditions that for a long time as a teenager, I wanted to neglect and I wanted, I wanted to push away. Mm-hmm. I now feel like I, I want to reconnect with. And there was a long time in my early 20s where I felt a little bit lost about who am I mm-hmm. um, so using my poetry to explore what that means who am I connecting to my family history um, my heritage my faith my culture my traditions and, and doing that through poetry has been a really 
a really beautiful experience um, and has also brought me closer to, to lots of people in my life and has really developed a relationship with my mum, with my grandparents, with the rest of my family and, and using poetry to explore what that means. Um, and I guess I say post-colonial immigrant experience because yeah. I'm talking about what it is like post-partition and post-Indian independence. What did the world look like for people like us? Yeah. Um, and whilst we moved across the world and the diaspora grew, mm-hmm. what are those experiences like for us? And I think there's a real importance in documenting that and telling those stories and writing those stories. And, and that doesn't just have to be through poetry. Yeah. It could be through so many different forms. But I think there's, there's a real duty for our generation to, to document those stories and make sure they, they don't get lost and, and, and they don't get lost in history. Mm-hmm. And... It was something really interesting you touched on during that answer, and it's um, really interesting to talk about because we were talking about it earlier last week as well, was why do you think when people are younger, they shy away from their culture? They shy away from, like, who they are kind of thing or what mm. their family is. Why do you think that is? I guess I guess there's not one concrete answer, but I, I think for me personally, growing up in, in London and growing up in the U.K., Mm-hmm. Everything I was seeing in my day-to-day life, whether it was on TV, whether it was in storybooks, um, whether it was in school, there was nothing around me that made me feel like I wanted to love who I was yeah. because I was seeing other people's standards of beauty and mm-hmm. I was seeing other people's standards of joy and I was seeing other people's standards of, of fashion and, and all these other elements of what makes us who we are. Yeah. And I wanted to be I wanted to be those people. Um yeah. and I and I laugh about the fact that if you look at a lot of the short stories I wrote when I was young, all my characters were white. <laughs> all my characters had white names. Yeah. Um I had particular favourites. Like if I look back at some of the ones I've still got, like Sarah or Hannah would always be my favorite characters to write about. And they would always eat English food, whatever that means. Yeah. And I, would, I, would, I, I didn't know it then, but it was just because everything I was seeing around me was reinforcing that that was the default, mm-hmm. that, that being a, a white person was default. Usually white man, but other than that, white woman was default. And everything around me just kind of connected to that. So as a teenager, when you're going through all the pressures of being a teenager, yeah. you don't want to you don't want to feel excluded from the norm. So you fit into what everyone else is doing. Yeah. Um, and I think throughout our teenage years, that ca- carries on happening. We continue to do that. We try to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. And for me personally, the, the transition point happened in my early 20s when I was at university and, and, and that's when I started to consider a little bit more about, well, who am I? Who have I tried to be this whole time and yeah. who do I want to be? Um, but yeah, I think that's what it is. I think that's what where that kind of rejection or denial comes from mm-hmm. is that the rest of society is showing us what what beauty is or what default is. And if I even think about kind of Eurocentric standards of beauty we're seeing white faces everywhere we're seeing blonde hair everywhere seeing blue eyes everywhere and not seeing yourself it's quite a hard world to grow up in and then to be told that you need to love yourself when nothing around you is showing you that is really hard Mm -hmm, definitely Mm. so just breathe I guess the main question is going to be what are some common taboo issues that you 
like to bring the spotlight to when it comes to your poetry? Yeah, so the taboos, the the, the thing that gets me um, the trouble troublemaker label. <laughs> um, I'm happy being the troublemaker. I'm happy kind of trying to shift the narrative and, and shake things up, even, even if it gets me in trouble sometimes. Yeah. But like I mentioned before, I guess one of the main issues is, is tackling mental health stigma and, and, and getting our community to reconsider how mm-hmm. we look at mental health. And that's every generation that goes from kind of the younger demographic all the way to, to our grandparents' generation. Um, because all of us are, are suffering. All of us are suffering from kind of a spectrum of different mental health issues. So it's important that everybody within those communities feels that they are getting the support that they need, the mm-hmm. access to services that they need, as well as culturally sensitive mental health services as well. Yeah. Mental health services that recognize the needs of, of the South Asian community. So that's kind of one of the, the big taboo topics. Um, one of the others is, is looking at gender discrimination specifically and, and the discrimination towards women and, and the oppression that women face in society at, at all levels, mm-hmm. whether that's economically, politically, culturally, socially. I, I, I use my poetry to kind of ta- tackle all those subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes there are things that people don't want to hear, like harassment towards women, violence towards women, mm-hmm. um, and even, even those really tough, subjects to do with with sexual violence in our community um, and and the ongoing sexual violence um, going on in even community spaces Mm -hmm. in in our society. So they're really hard topics to talk about and definitely very triggering for for, for people and and, and definitely sometimes quite uncomfortable for people. But Mm -hmm. like like I said before, I think poetry and the arts um, and, and the wider art sphere can really be a wonderful way to tackle those issues issues in, in an accessible way. Definitely. Um, and then there goes kind of the more kind of political activism that I do in my poetry as well. So that can range from the farmers' protest going on in Punjab at the moment mm-hmm. to rights for women um, and, and women's right to choice. Um, and their body autonomy. So mm-hmm. it, it ranges on a, on a kind of poli- political activism as well. Um, so, yeah, those are kind of some of the key themes yeah. to tackle those taboos. Now, when it comes down to it, I know you said you are you, you don't mind being the troublemaker kind of thing. That makes you kind of <laughs> wonder, how was the response kind of tackling these kind of th- um, issues? Yeah, so I, I guess first, one of the first places I, I kind of received some hesitation was amongst my own family and the oh, people okay. closest to me. I guess mm. for my family to see me being so outspoken about some of these really touchy subjects, yeah. at first they were quite nervous and they were quite apprehensive about me doing this, mm. more for my own safety and more for my own well-being, that they knew that this may push some buttons mm-hmm. and... It's also because they've never seen a brown woman doing this before. There's no other young brown women in my family kind of doing this work. Mm -hmm. So it was strange for them, especially when you kind of think about South Asian families only seeing kind of those traditional careers and those traditional fields and encouraging their children to be doctors, lawyers, dentists. Uh, And here was me being a bit of a troublemaker. (laughs) But they, they knew... I really cared about these 
these topics and they knew that I was so passionate about making social change yeah. that they knew that this was my journey. And, and my dad laughs about it sometimes that he's like, he saw this in me as a child. He was mm-hmm. like, I knew you were always going to be doing something big. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess this, this kind of interlinks with, with my faith as well. Growing up as a sick woman, considering the fact that for me to, to perform my server and my selfless service, in society and, and to my communities, I do have to be a bit of a troublemaker and I do have to push some buttons yeah. to, to help that progress and, mm-hmm. and to help that collective progress um, so that our, our communities can, can be the best that they can possibly be. So mm-hmm. I kind of see it interlinks with my faith as well that this is me serving my purpose. If it's helping people um, and if it's just helping at least one person, yeah. then... I hope I've made that difference. 100%. Now, I guess this might be a little bit of a strange question because it's a bit (laughs) overall and it's a bit kind of broad. But I know we get told that, oh, as the new generations come, we start to change, we start to have different mindsets. Do you think that plays part in these taboos? I know especially when it comes to women empowerment and when it comes to the ability of women being like overshadowed. Do you think we're starting to see that change now? Yeah, I think it's really great that you mentioned that idea of we sometimes get that label of, well, most younger generations do that, that we think we're thinking differently and we're trying to change things or we're losing our culture and traditions. Mm-hmm. But I think if anything, what a lot of a lot of people are trying to do and trying to say is that, in fact, leaning into our cultures and leaning into our old traditions can actually help our communities in a really positive way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give I'll give one example from the top of my head about thinking about mental health and mental well-being. Um, I often say that leaning into our cultures and traditions can actually support our mental well-being. If we think about meditation, yoga, and 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 those things that really can support our mental health. Yeah, those things have all come all come from the east. They've come from our homeland. Mm-hmm. So there is something really precious in in holding on to those those traditions from our cultures because they can actually help us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess some of the the topics, the taboo topics to do with women and and tackling gender inequality. Um, I don't think it's necessarily shaking up things too much because. In, in most of South Asian cultures and most South Asian faiths, the way that women are seen equal to men and mm-hmm. should be, be treated in that way is something that all faiths and all our cultures are trying to encourage. Yeah. So again, again, we should be leaning into those teachings and leaning into those beliefs because that will serve to the betterment of both women and men. So. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily feel like we're losing who we are and trying to change things so much. I think if we really look at the nuances of it all, leaning into our cultures and our beliefs and our faith can actually be a way for us to move forward. Mm -hmm. If anything, I feel we've lost true meaning of things. Um, And a lot of this has been impacted by empire. A lot of this has been impacted by colonialism and has been impacted by the British going over mm-hmm. to the East and going over to the South Asian continent and miscuing a lot of our thoughts on things and a lot of our understandings on things. Mm-hmm. Um, and another one just off the top of my head is, is the way that we now think about sexuality, yeah. which was, was quite, quite an open conversation 
in Asia. If we think about sexuality in terms of non-heterosexual relationships, if we think about the LGBTQ plus community, that's been going on in Asia for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. But it was only made illegal and homosexual acts specifically in India were only made illegal under the British. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was only revoked under the penal code a couple of years ago. I think it was 2018 when that was finally revoked. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's worth us really looking into our history. It's worth us really understanding who we are and where we come from. Mm-hmm. And the more that we do that, I think the more sure we'll be of, of, of who we are as South Asians and who we are as the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I'm biased because I am a history teacher, but yeah. it's so important that we understand our histories and, and who we are and where we come from, yeah. as well as the histories that aren't traditionally taught as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to diversify our, our understanding of history and, and to look for stories that may have been untold in the traditional sense. Yeah. Now, I know we are talking about history, and before we wrap up our interview tonight, I want to go into a little bit about talking about the future, because I know um, one big news story that came for the South Asian community, especially in women, especially, was the fact that Kamala Harris got elected as vice president. And now we're looking at newer generations having that, I guess, like, that being able to see that that's achievable for women, because back in the day, it didn't look like it was achievable for women. How is this perception going to change for people growing up now with this kind of outlook that, hey, that's a woman, you know, she's a vice president one day, you know, we can have a president or we can have someone ruling the world that is a woman kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm a big believer in you need to see it to believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of the, the key examples of that happening to see that a woman of color can get into those positions of power and that it is possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a big thing there about seeing it to believe it and, and that will inspire so many young women of color to believe that they can reach those dreams and that potential for themselves. But mm-hmm. I think a big part of the conversation is is also to see the nuance in these situations as well, that just because a woman of of color is in those positions doesn't automatically mean representation. And that doesn't automatically mean that all our needs are met. Mm -hmm. There's still so much work to do. So I think that's just one step in in feeling like that we're being seen and heard. But there's loads of other ways it can happen as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm a big believer in these sorts of things are, are a multi-pronged approach. I definitely think from a top-down level, we need to see more women of colour and more women in positions of power. Yeah. But we also need to see at a grassroots level, which is equally as powerful, doing the work too. So there are amazing South Asian women's networks in mm-hmm. Canada that I've connected with, in, in the UK that I've connected with, in, in the US, but also in Asia as well, that are really doing the grassroots level work to make sure that we as women of color are being seen and heard and, and our struggles and and our voices and our needs are being met. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm a big believer in, in seeing it to believe it and, and Kamala Harris and, and being in that position is incredible for brown women to see. But to remember that doesn't automatically mean the work is done. Yeah. There's still a lot more work to be done. Exactly. That's a great way to put it now. Is there anything that you have planned for the future when it comes down to your work? Yeah, I guess the next big thing for me now in 2021 is 
the release of my book coming out later this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm currently working on a narrative nonfiction entitled Brown Girl Like Me. Yeah. And that will be coming out in autumn of this year. Um, so that's what I've been busy working on during 2020, <laughs> during this, this crazy year of this pandemic. I've been, I call it hermit mode. So I've just been sitting in my room, surrounded by books and researching <laughs> and interviewing amazing women and brown women from across the globe mm. and putting together our, our stories into this book that's entitled Brown Girl Like Me. And, and it will be touching on a lot of the themes that we've spoken about today. So mental health, um, brown bodies, the classroom, our history, our identity, um, and really a story of, of empowerment for brown women. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm currently working on. Mm-hmm. And that will be out this autumn. That's awesome. And for our listeners that want to find more about you or, you know, be able to check out your spoken word and your poetry, where can they get that from? Where's What's the resource that they can go check out for all that? Yeah, so that, that's all the good stuff on, on social media. You can find me at behindthenetra.com. Oh, sorry. No, that's my website, www.behindthenetra.com. All my social handles are at behindthenetra. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Josmeet, for joining us today. It was great getting your insight on everything. And, you know, I'm very excited for what the future holds for you. But again, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Anwar. Have a great day.